This is an ABC podcast. G'day and welcome to Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer from Radio National, on air, online or via your ABC Listen app. Hope you're well. Now coming up later, Myanmar. Well, Myanmar's army has seized power in a coup, claiming it's over election disparities after pro-democracy forces humiliated the military's party at elections in November. Military television announced a state of emergency for one year, capping a day that began with early morning army raids, rounding up the country's civilian leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, other members of her National League for Democracy party, as well as regional, ethnic and student leaders, anyone who might protest. That was an ABC report in early February. In the five months since, Myanmar, according to the UN's top human rights official, has descended into a human rights catastrophe. Stay with us for my chat with a former Australian ambassador to Myanmar. But first, following the recent round of fighting between Hamas and Israel, both Tehran and Jerusalem have changed political leadership. After four elections in two years, there was this in Israel. Now official Benjamin Netanyahu is out as Israeli Prime Minister. This was the moment a short time ago when 12 consecutive years of Prime Minister for Benjamin Netanyahu ended. CNN there. Israel now has a diverse coalition government that's led by Naftali Bennett, a 49-year-old leader of a far-right nationalist party and the first Orthodox Jew to hold the office. Meanwhile, Iran will have a new president. The hardliner, Ibrahim Rahisi, often viewed as an acolyte of the supreme leader Ayatollah, will replace President Hassan Rouhani, a relative moderate whose government signed the 2015 nuclear deal with the US and other world powers. To get to the bottom of all this, let's welcome our panel. Daniel Pipes, he's president of the Middle East Forum in Philadelphia, and Sally Totman Marshall is associate professor of Middle East Studies at Deakin University in Melbourne. Sally, Daniel, welcome to Radio National. Hi, Tom. Thank you, Tom. Daniel, he won't take office until August, but what do you think the significance of the new Iranian president is? The office of president in Iran is a little eccentric. It's more like uh, prime minister under a dictator. It's someone who carries out the will of the Supremo. Uh, He's important in that he has opinions and he can move it this way or that way, but he doesn't make the key decisions of state. So the fact that Khamenei, the uh, supreme leader, wanted Raisi to be the president signals to the country and to the world that he is retreating into a tougher position than a few years ago when he had Rouhani. Sally, your thoughts on the new Iranian president? Look, Raisi is a hardliner, and as Daniel said, he definitely has the support of the Supreme Leader. Um, They cleared the way for him to win these elections with the Guardian Council sort of uh, eliminating any sort of other potential candidates that could have been real competition for him. And I think as he comes into power, he has a host of challenges that he's going to have to overcome. And I think it remains unclear how he's going to tackle uh, any of these issues. But I do think one thing that we are going to see is that after his inauguration in August, he's going to have to negotiate with the United States 
He's going to have to try and persuade President Biden to lift the crushing sanctions on Iran if he has any hope of stabilising and, and rebuilding the fractured economy. Yeah, and what, the, what does all this mean for the nuclear deal? Because defenders of the, the Obama nuclear deal uh, from 2015, they argued uh, that by leaving the deal, Donald Trump weakened reformers and empowered hardliners like this guy. Daniel, what does all this mean for reviving the 2015 nuclear deal? It has about uh, 40 days in which it can take place. And if it doesn't take place then, it's not likely to do so. In other words, before Raisi comes to office. Okay. Uh, Daniel has argued in the past that uh, Tehran uh, wants to spread its religious revolution to the rest of the world. Is that now more likely under this regime, uh, Sally? I, I disagree, I guess, with Daniel's uh, sort of, I guess, idea about Iran wanting to spread its, you know, beautiful revolution. Um, but I do think it needs to consolidate its power at home. Um, and, you know, the support of the Supreme Leader for Racy is a clear sign that that's what they're doing. Um, they're not interested in, in reform. They're not interested perhaps in uh, building uh, Iran's position except consolidating what they already have. Okay, and we should stress that Iran is really struggling to placate a society that's been plagued by not just the sanctions but a decimated economy. I think I heard a BBC report the other day talking about massive stagflation, so high inflation, high unemployment, and of course you've got this ongoing pandemic. To what extent will that limit Iran's regional ambitions? Daniel Pipes. Well, Iranian regional ambitions are very great, and indeed at this time the Iranians have a dominant influence in four countries, Yemen, Lebanon, Syria, and Iraq. And they would like to extend that to other countries. So the goal of the Islamic revolution in Iran is to spread the revolution. It can be done through suasion, and it can be done through sabotage, and it can be done through force. All these options are open and all are being attempted, some more successfully than others. I think uh, spreading the revolution through allied groups has turned out to be the most successful method. Hezbollah and other such groups has proven to be the most successful. That's ongoing. And indeed, indeed, the people in Iran are being squeezed in order to pay for these foreign ventures. They're crucial to the revolution. Sally Totman Marshall. Um, look, da Daniel's right. I mean, I think that Iran is holding its own or perhaps even better in those countries that he mentioned, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria and Yemen. And I certainly don't think under Racy we're going to see a reduction in Iranian support for Hezbollah or for the Houthis in Yemen, um, and certainly not in Iraq where they're, you know, I guess strengthening uh, Shia groups. But I don't think it's about necessarily spreading the revolution. I think it is about, you know, I guess Iranian influence um, and, you know, wh whether you see that as spreading the revolution or, or something else is, you know, a matter of opinion, I think. Let's now turn to Israel because the Jewish state also has new leadership. Daniel, your thoughts on what's been labelled a very diverse administration led by Naftali Bennett. Uh, will it help the mood in Washington? After all, the Democrats will surely be pleased with a government that includes some left-wing members. Indeed it will be. But I expect we'll be disappointed. The government has eight parties in it, three on the right, two in the middle, two on the left, and one Islamist. I think for the reasons you just expressed, that there are two left-wing parties, this will be a source of hope. But the way it's structured, it looks like the right-wing parties will have the final word. 
And so I think the Biden administration will, in the end, be disappointed. Yes, well, Sally, will the new Israeli government mean that that recent uh, US-Israeli tensions, uh, which uh, many have have attributed to Netanyahu's uh, close Republican ties and, and more confrontational approach, will that subside? Look, my first thought when I heard about the new government was, gosh, how long will that last? Um, I can't see it making the four years. I can't even see it making the two years until they swap prime ministers. I think this is a very fragile coalition, more fragile than any of the ones that Netanyahu managed to cobble together. Um, I think everyone's going to be disappointed. I think the only thing that they have in common is that they didn't want Netanyahu in government. And now they've achieved that. I'm not sure what can hold them together. Um, I I certainly don't think they can achieve anything as a group. Daniel Pipes. I, I think there is something else they have in common which is fear of another round of elections. And if that's the case, then they will stop short of breaking the government. They might not get a lot done, though there are certain areas, such as the role of religion in the country. There are certain areas where they can agree. But yeah, by and large, they will be very cautious. But I'm inclined to think it will last longer than uh, Professor Marshall does. Yeah, yeah, well, Israel's critics abroad painted Netanyahu and his uh, Liquid party as their foil. Now that Netanyahu and Liquid are out of power, Sally, many people would think that that means that Israel's more likely to embrace more dovish security policies. What's your sense? I don't think so. Certainly Bennett, um, I don't think, has any leanings that way. And, and yes, he is making up a very small fraction of the new coalition, but I think he's got a powerful voice in that coalition. You know, he opposes the creation of a Palestinian state. He, you know, supports the expansion of settlements. I don't think that's the sign of a dove. Are there are there members of the, the left-leaning parties that are more sympathetic to the idea of a two-state solution, Daniel? Yes, certainly they are, but they are somewhat marginalised because they, by definition, are in the opposition to Likud and Netanyahu, whereas the right-wing parties are only in opposition to Netanyahu himself and not his ideas and not his party. So they are more fragile and they could form a different coalition. If you towed up all the right-wing and right-wing affiliated parties in the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, they number 81 out of 120 at present. So it is overwhelmingly two-thirds a right-wing Knesset. And so the left-wing is is cautious. It's not pushing too hard. It's deferring to the right. So am I right in saying that although you express yourselves in different ways, you're both in agreement that the change in Israeli leadership won't really change things much when it comes to position towards Iran and the uh, the peace process between Israelis and the Palestinians? Sally? Look, I, I don't think that there's going to be a positive change for the Palestinians under this government. Um, how that will play out, you know, in the day-to-day or, or whatever, I, I don't know. Um, but I certainly don't see that, you know, this is a, you know, a shining hope for the peace process. Daniel. The great debate in the last few years has been Benjamin Netanyahu. Are you for him? Are you against him? The great debate in Israel has not been over Iran, over the Palestinians, over the economy, over the pandemic and other great issues. It's been over the personality of one individual. If he remains out of office, things will move on. But so long as he is, as he is at present, still a very powerful voice and force, it will remain the key topic. And the other issues, larger issues, will remain somewhat peripheral. On RN, this is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer.
My guests are Daniel Pipes in Philadelphia and Sally Totman-Marshall in Melbourne. What does all this mean for the broader Middle East? Because clearly the Muslim world or the Arab world, the Persian, the Persian area is increasingly splintered along sectarian lines. You've got the, the sort of Saudi-led Sunni Arab states versus the Iranian-backed uh, uh, Shia crescent. Uh, what does all this mean for the broader geopolitical battle between these two groups? First to you, Sally. Look, I think a lot depends on what happens with the JCPOA negotiations in Vienna before Racy comes to power in August. I think if uh, Robert Malley can actually sort of uh, bring it all together um, and that remains to be seen, then, you know, things will be very different from if the JCPOA doesn't get reinstated. Um, but I don't think we're going to see any of the problems in the region solved, uh, you know, in, in the near future um, without a lot of, I guess, hard work and, and concessions by a great you know, number of groups and people. Daniel Pops. Aggressive Iranian policy over decades has led uh, many Sunni Arab states to conclude that Iran is their problem much more than Israel. And this has led to a huge shift in attitudes both towards Iran and towards Israel. And uh, Israel is now integrated into the region in a way that was never the case before. Uh, this is a big change. The question is how long-term it changes it. Should there be a, a shift in Tehran? Does that mean that the Saudis, Emiratis, and others go back to the old attitude? Or has this changed for the long term? I'm inclined to think it's a change for the long term. Now, we've talked about how the change in leadership in Iran and in Israel have uh, may have changed things, which appears to be not a great deal of change. But what about the change of leadership in Washington? Uh, uh, Biden uh, wants to reject the Trump strategy that focused on containing Iran. And of course, Trump forged closer ties among America's traditional allies in the region. To what extent has the Biden administration or will the Biden administration change things on the ground across the Middle East? Daniel Pipes. Well, in part, it's rejection of Trump's policies. And in part, it's a continuation of Obama's Trump's Obama's and Trump's policies, which is to de-emphasize the Middle East in favor, in particular, of East Asia and also of great powers. There's a sense now in the United States that, okay, we've been diddling around with small powers like Iran. Now we're dealing with China and, to a lesser extent, Russia. We have to get serious. We have to rebuild our military. We have to look at great power rivalry again, which in a way we haven't for some 30 years. So that's the bigger uh, change for, for from the American point of view. So the end of American unipolarity since the end of the Cold War, that's revived great power security competition and the Americans, whether it be under Trump or Biden, is placing less emphasis on the Persian Gulf, pivoting away to Asia. Is that your sense too, Sally? Look, I think that would be what President Biden would like. Um, you know, I think strategically that makes sense, but I do think that the Middle East is sort of a flame that the US moth can't keep away from. Um, and, you know, despite their best intent, they'll probably be drawn back into the region. Okay. And uh, so you're, you're both saying that there'll be US staying power in the Persian Gulf, even though the Biden wants to bulk up forces directing at countering China. Is that right, Daniel? Yes, there will be continued. As uh, Professor Marshall puts it, there's this fatal attraction to the Middle East. Uh, <laughs> it is by dint of religion, by dint of oil and gas, by dint of its 
centrality and the globe of the, or the map of the globe, it's hard to leave it. Yes, but America now volatile. is but America now is energy independent for the first time in generations. Why is America so reliant on the Middle East, Sally? It's because of the way the world oil market works. Yes, the US is you know self reliant for oil, but the you know the importance of you know the OPEC uh, market and the AOPEC market on world oil price you know impacts the US economy as well. Um, and so having that, you know, I guess resource available um, isn't about the US accessing it. It's about, you know, the way the, I guess, globalization uh, and the world works. Um, and so it's still important, even if the US itself isn't using it. Final question to both of you. There have been reports uh, late this week uh, that the US has seized Iran-linked news sites over alleged disinformation. Now, the US says those sites are linked to Yemen's Houthi movement, Daniel Pipes. It's a remarkable development, quite at odds with one's, with at least my understanding that the Biden administration is trying to go out of its way to accommodate Tehran to reach a deal with it. So uh, I can't quite account for it. It might be the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. It might be that this is a way to put pressure on the new Iranian president. Uh, just happened. So I'm not quite sure how to interpret it. Uh, Daniel, Sally, great to have you back on Radio National. Great to be back. This is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. We have been engaged in the struggle for democracy for more than 20 years, so you might think we should know what we are. Well, yes, we do know what we are, but only up to a certain point. It is easy enough to say that we are members of a particular party, like the NLD or organisation, but beyond that, things start to get a bit fuzzy. Well, we may never hear that voice again. Aung San Suu Kyi, civilian leader of Myanmar's democratically elected government. The Nobel Peace Prize winner has been held incommunicado since the February 1 military coup. She now stands trial and she's almost certain to be found guilty of politically motivated charges. Now, that means the 76-year-old Aung San Suu Kyi might spend decades in prison. What can Australia, the world, do? Nicholas Koppel was Australia's ambassador to Myanmar from 2015 to 2018. Nicholas, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Now, Aung San Suu Kyi, she faces several charges. What are just some of these allegations? Well, she, she faces yes, quite a few charges. It began with a charge of uh, illegally importing walkie-talkies, so importing walkie-talkies without a license. Uh, it's, it's quite a preposterous charge and, and a ridiculous one. She's also been charged with violating Myanmar's natural disaster law, and that essentially is a charge that she was not wearing a face mask during uh the pre-election period, in the campaign period of the elections, in uh, which were held in November last year, and then they started um, adding more charges to her as time went by. So the coup was one February, and in early March, they uh, charged her with using illegal communication equipment and causing quote fear and alarm unquote. To that was added the charge of corruption later that month. 
and a number a, a businessman was um, who had been arrested and detained and put under considerable pressure apparently made a confession that he had given her some about five hundred thousand dollars over several years yes and, well this is clearly a stitcher but uh, you know and she she's not alone here I mean also jailed our uh, chief ministers her advisors, including an Australian. There's Professor Sean Turnell. He's the economic advisor of Aung San Suu Kyi. So tell us more about that, their plight. Yes, so she's not the only one. They arrested all the senior figures in her party, the National League for Democracy. Uh, uh, They also arrested the president of of Myanmar, whom um, we hear hear less about, but it's also quite an egregious offence. And Sean Turnell. Now, Sean is a professor from, from from Macquarie University in Sydney, and has been an advisor to the National League for Democracy and Aung San Suu Kyi for a, probably over 10 years, I would say. He is, was charged initially with attempting to flee the country. Uh, again, you know, why would that be such a serious offence? And, uh, and why would you grab somebody from their hotel room and charge them with attempting to flee? I mean, again, clearly it trumped up charges and they seized his computer and his phone and um, have been trying to to get from those devices uh, information, documents, which would uh, implicate uh, Aung San Suu Kyi. But uh, Sean Turnell's um, been denied proper consular access, as is uh, required under international treaties, which Myanmar is a party to, Vienna Conventions on Consular Access. He's had a very limited uh, contact with his uh, wife, just a, a few phone calls with, I think it was two or three, in, in the um, five months that he's been detained. And uh, again, it's um, the charges against him have also been extended to to other ones, you know, including the breaching of the Official Secrets Act. It's very sad. It's uh, been very difficult for the embassy there and for mm-hmm. the Australian government to get him out. And um, his fate remains, he's, it's not unclear where he's being held. It's not a very satisfactory situation. No, and and we should stress that Aung San Suu Kyi's defence lawyer um, says that she's been um, unable to access the internet, uh, watch television or read anything other than military-controlled media. So one suspects it's the same for her advisors, including this Australian, Sean Turnell. My guest is Nicholas Koppel, Australia's ambassador to Myanmar from 2015 to 2018. We're talking about Myanmar five months ago since the military coup. Now, according to human rights groups, Jujunta has killed more than 860 people and detained nearly 5,000 people. Uh, Nicholas, do you have a sense of how uh, of, of the political mood in Myanmar? I mean, ha- uh, is there any outlet for civilians who protest the military rule? Yes, there is, and we've seen quite an... Uh an outpouring of protest against it. Aung San Suu Kyi's party won over 80% of the contested seats in the elections. You know, it's an unambiguous victory and the the will of the people is, is very clear. And so for her on the day that her government was to be sworn in, for the military coup to take place on that day has provoked intense outrage. And it's not some elite group of uh, you know, university students from Yangon. It is across the country. And we saw it at the beginning with um, you know, the bagging of pots and pans at, you know, at 8 p.m. every night. But uh, this morphed into a, a more activist opposition. We saw uh, pro- uh, barricades being formed. 
And then the police and the army started shooting live ammunition to break up these barricades and enormous casualties. Over 860 people have been killed uh, since then. So the protesters have now taken a, a newer form, and that is to adopt um, more violent tactics. So they are in turn um, shooting and uh, sending uh, improvised explosive devices against the military forces. So it's settling in for a more protracted, more bloody, more violent uh, conflict. A human rights catastrophe is how the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, this is Michelle Bachelet, she's described the situation on the ground. Now, what can we do? Canberra has a pre-existing arms embargo and uh, sanctions against a few military figures involved in the coup. But what more can Australia do? Well, there are limits to what any country can do. These events are taking place within Myanmar, between Myanmar players. It's also a country uh, whose military, it's called the Tatmadaw, have been subject to sanctions for many decades. So they're well practiced in coping under a regime of sanctions. They really don't care about the rest of the world. They don't care what the rest of the world thinks of them or the rest of the world does with that to them. They have um, spent their entire careers in such an environment. So that limits the usefulness of statements of condemnation and embargoes and, and the like. So those things need to happen. They need to happen to provide encouragement and support to the people on the ground in Myanmar, but they're very much um, symbolic. They're not going to achieve regime change in themselves. But what Australia needs to do, and uh, I'm pleased to say is doing, is not to be acting alone. We need to be acting together with uh, other countries in the region and staying close to, and here I'm referring to Japan, to Singapore, to Indonesia, Malaysia, and so on. Countries of the region that are very close to Myanmar, well, sharing borders in some cases, and ensuring that uh, we are acting in support of each other and also sharing ideas and information in terms of what's happening on the ground. One avenue, if you like, where there is a possibility or opening where for dialogue is through the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, ASEAN. And they have achieved with, with Myanmar a, what they call a five-point consensus. Now, this was in, in late April. Now, it's, it's imperfect. They, they didn't talk to the elected representatives. They only spoke to the commander-in-chief. But nevertheless, they were able to speak with him and uh, get agreement for the appointment of a special envoy and for the provision of humanitarian access. There's been little progress on that since late April. And I think we need to work with the countries in the region and use our pressure to uh, ensure that that five-point plan is indeed implemented. Okay, but what kind of influence and leverage does Canberra or indeed Southeast Asia have? Uh, When you were ambassador, you met with the guy who's turned out to be the military coup leader. Uh, Did you feel even then, years before the coup, that Canberra had any influence or leverage over him? I don't think anyone feels they've got any influence or leverage over the commander-in-chief. Even with targeted sanctions? Even with targeted sanctions. uh, You know, there's only um, a handful of countries in the world that have applied sanctions to to Myanmar, and the ones that supply him with the greatest amount of military hardware, China and Russia, uh, as well as Belarus, 
are not um, applying sanctions. So the reality is it's business as usual because Myanmar's military has been sanctioned by Western countries um, for decades. There's nothing new there, and they have their established supply chains with other countries that produced military equipment. Well, this is a disturbing story. It's a moving story, and we'll keep an eye on it. Nicholas, thanks so much for uh, keeping our listeners up to date. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Nicholas Koppel was Australia's ambassador to Myanmar from 2015 to 2018. Well, that's it for the show. And if you'd like to hear this or other episodes, including last week's show with the veteran BBC journalist Jonathan Dimbleby on how the Russians defeated Nazi Germany, just go to the abc.net.au and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. Or, of course, you can just go to the ABC Listen app where you can download us for free or wherever you download your shows online. I'm Tom Switzer, and thanks for listening. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.